Good morning. My name is Whitney Root, and I serve as the Women's Resident Director at Welsh College in Gallatin, Tennessee. I'm going to talk today about biblical conflict resolution. So, it's my responsibility to care for around 70-ish women in the women's dorm, where my husband Jacob and I live. As you can imagine, uh, we share our fair share of experiences of excitement and uh, as well as conflict living in a dorm with so many females. I will never forget my first semester as RD when I answered a knock on my door around 11 p.m., um, only to be surprised by a, girls, a group of girls serenading me with various stringed instruments, or the times I've received hand-picked bouquets of flowers from, from girls just because, or the times when my couch has been used for informal counseling sessions, or the times that aren't always so pleasant, like mediation between students after they've come to blows about thermostat settings or early alarm clocks. <laughs> In one particular instance, conflict between two students was attempted to be resolved with the help of a resident assistant, or an RA, which, to no fault of the RA, just put a band-aid over the situation. So under the, under the surface, uh, tensions still boiled, uh, which often were shown in passive-aggressive comments, uh, texts, and eventually angry outbursts. This was the final straw, and both parties found themselves in my apartment, joined by their RA, who at this point had just been put through the ringer, um, and they were now forced to confront each other in person and directly. Unsurprisingly, neither student had any complaints, so we sat in awkward silence, which, which is my personal favorite tactic to use. <laughs> I was determined to fix the problem these two students had with each other, so when the conversation did eventually begin, I immediately wished that I could rewind the tape and begin again. Because what I thought had been an open opportunity for um, an open floor, respectful conversation quickly turned into one party raking the other party over the coals, even throwing blows so low relating to their physical appearance. I had never felt so awful in my life. I thought to myself, I'm the adult in this situation. I should have known this would happen. This is all my fault. While attempts were made to immediately reroute the direction of the conversation, the damage had already been done, the tears were flowing, and all lines of communication had been absolutely shut down. The conversation was over before it really had the chance to be effective, and everyone felt left feeling absolutely awful, myself included. As I reflect back on my poor example of conflict resolution, I've learned many lessons about conflict management styles, appropriate ways to mediate and influence conversation, and the fragility of emotions that naturally come with conflict. While I wouldn't say that my job is always peaceful and serene, I would say that there have been lots of opportunity for God's grace to work in my life and in the lives of the women in the dorm. I've learned much about how to resolve any number of conflicts, some predictable and some a little off the wall and strange. There have been times that I've found myself saying, well, oh, I didn't receive any training on that, or, well, that's a new one. What I've come to know is that conflict is inevitable, um, but can be redeemed as an opportunity to declare God's glory, practice selfless service to others, and grow in sanctification. So before we, get, we begin, let's really lay the foundation. What is conflict? How and why does it happen? When does conflict occur? So first, we have to have a right view of conflict, widely speaking, of course. Conflict is competitive or opposing action of incompatibles or an antagonistic state. Um, when this makes sense, right? Opposing action of incompatibles, actions, words, thoughts, or intentions that don't match the actions, words, thoughts, and intentions of other people. An antagonistic state or state of dislike or being opposed to something. According to Alfred Poiret in his popular book, The Peacemaking Pastor, which I will reference 
a lot. It's a phenomenal resource. I would highly recommend to you. Um, another way of defining conflict could be a difference in opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. Conflict results when my desires, expectations, fears, or wants collide with your desires, expectations, fears, or wants. We've all experienced conflict. It's part of our day-to-day -day reality as a result of corrupting sin. We can trace conflict back to Genesis 3 in the account of the fall of man. We know the story. The serpent tempts Eve to question or reconsider what God has told her in Adam's truth. She states in regard to the tree in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. After a quick exchange with the serpent, Eve finds God's command and Satan's cunning coercion in stark contrast. A conflict stands before her, and she makes a choice. She eats of the fruit of the tree and gives some to her husband, Adam. And what do we read next? Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. That's what's so dangerous and damning about sin, is that it often blinds our ability to think and respond rationally. A little later, we read of what would seem to be the first interpersonal conflict recorded um, in many of scripture. And he, God, said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I've, from which I've commanded you not to eat? When questioned, Adam folds and blames Eve for their joint decision to eat of the tree of which God had commanded them not to eat. And I find myself wondering what kind of look Eve shot at her husband at his response. Conflict is their direct result of sin, but how do we take care of sin? Romans 8.13 tells us, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Another translation uses the word mortify. Mortification of, or the process of putting to death, um, sin by the way of the Holy Spirit brings about life. In his book, The Mortification of Sin, John Owen, a Puritan pastor and author, maintains that truly living, or living a life of joy and peace, is necessitates the mortification of sin. He states, not to be mortifying sin is to sin against the goodness, kindness, wisdom, grace, and love of God, who hath furnished us for the principle of doing it. Sin, including conflict, impedes our ability to maintain a right view of God in proper worship. So, Maybe it's a run-in with someone at a store on Black Friday who took the very last blender off the shelf right as you were reaching for it. You exchange glares and are filled with immediate rage. Or maybe it's that perpetual frustration you have with your uncle who always seems just to know just what buttons to push at Christmas dinner. Or perhaps you've experienced conflict at work. A coworker continues to shirk responsibilities, leaving you to pick up the pieces because they have to be picked up. Maybe you perceive conflict when a church member marches up to you just as service is about to begin, saying, Pastor, you preach too long, and I hate the music here, and I've talked to other people who feel the same way, so don't forget who pays your bills. Or, do you ever feel conflict with your spouse? Expectations not met, and tempers boiling, only to spill over at the most inopportune times. So many times these situations leave us filled with feelings of intense anger, frustration, betrayal, misunderstanding, sadness, loneliness, or maybe feeling unheard or misjudged. So how and why does conflict happen? Well, any number of reasons, of course, that you can name. Um, but I submit to you that conflict boils down to <coughs> communication and expectation. Poor or unclear communication can so often be the why of an argument or a disagreement, even for conflict that goes back years. 
It can be a matter of communication that doesn't get to the heart of the emotion. Perhaps conflict could even find its root in a person's desire to be kind or non-offensive or non-confrontational, which may actually result in more miscommunication um, or not saying what was actually meant, just confusing intentions. We all seem to have this uh, natural proclivity toward magnifying the faults of others while turning a blind eye to our own, myself included. We all have these rehearsed excuses and different biases that are so often deeply rooted within our being and sometimes even unconsciously so. And we tend to make these blind alley arguments where both parties are adamant that they remember the same scenario differently, uh, which creates conflict within a relationship. We often call these standoffs where no one is budging or willing to listen or consider another person's side. In these situations, it seems that compromise really isn't even on the table. It's during these arguments that emphasis should be placed not on the topic of the conflict, but on respectful communication and attentive listening. It is important to note here that when trying to understand the why or the how of a conflict, we, we should try to resist the immediate urge to untangle the web before uh, we understand what the web is actually made of and why it was spun in the first place. So often we want to jump into action to fix a problem before we know the who, what, when, where, why, and how. Um, and if we don't have a clear picture of what's causing or contributing to the problem, we may find ourselves more entangled than we intended. And I can't tell you how many times it took me learning the hard way before I actually started addressing conflict correctly. I personally like to think of myself as a peacemaker and a fixer. I hate conflict and I hate when there's tension and there's turmoil. Some may argue that I've maybe gone into the wrong field, but um, I'm, I'm really only kidding. But I, I wouldn't say that dwelling in conflict to figure out what's behind the harsh words and actions makes me feel all that comfortable. I remember sitting at a table with some of my friends on vacation um, when friendly banter turned into an outright argument. I felt so uncomfortable and panicked, so much so that I couldn't sit still or uh, calm down. I was having this, this physical reaction to the stress, the rising temp uh, tensions and the heating tempers. I, I knew that I needed to leave or I would start crying. Um, I excused myself and I took a walk around the block several times until lunch was over. And I would assume that for some of you, maybe it's the same. Maybe you feel tension or stress and you bolt in the opposite direction. Or, unlike my natural inclinations, maybe you dive in head first in efforts to solve the problems for whatever reasons I don't understand. <laughs> you tend, maybe you use bluntness in the name of peace. I'm thoroughly convinced that no one sincerely enjoys the feeling of being out of control or just being <coughs> out of uh, anger or feeling chaotic. It may feel good in the heat of the moment to be mad or so irate that your blood really is boiling, but these emotions are unstable and they're unhealthy. Uh, these emotions end in destruction of ourselves and destruction of others when unkind words are hurled as insults um, meant to inflict damage so great that the opponent not only waves the white flag of surrender but is absolutely decimated in the process. We call these responses either escape responses or attack responses, up to uh, extreme ends of the spectrum. Neither response is a good or ideal response. Um, Ken Sand coined uh, the slippery slope, which is almost like a, looks like a temperature gauge, uh, from his book, The Peacemaker, which expounds a great deal on responses to conflict. Inappropriate conflict resolution strategies include escape and or attack. 
Sand calls these peace faking and peace breaking responses, respectively. Escape responses include the extreme of suicide, flight responses, and denial. My husband and I joke that I embody the escape response in the way that I handle conflict. I quickly, quickly go airborne and come back when the conflict has either gone away or been pushed to the back burner, which I also realize is some form of denial. Uh, though I'm making light of it, escape responses are serious responses. As I just mentioned, suicide is at the extreme end of the slippery slope. And for some, this is the only way to resolve conflict when it seems insurmountable or um, unrelenting. I will, Jacob and I were talking about this a few weeks ago that I'll, I'll never, neither of us actually will ever forget the first time that we encountered suicide when we were in high school. There was a young boy in our school district who was the victim of suicide as a result of some ongoing bullying. And I remember um, interacting with him at my sister's birthday parties. They were in the same class. And I remember he lived on our road, so we rode the same bus. He was in Jacob's Boy Scout troop. So for him, escaping conflict was the only way he, he knew to end his suffering at school and on the football team. The attack response, or the peace-breaking response, includes assault, litigation, and murder. Yes, murder, and you'll note that the two extremes, suicide and murder, end in death and absolute destruction. Um, and that's why it's of utmost importance that conflict be resolved appropriately and biblically. When I say assault, I don't necessarily uh, mean physical assault, although that certainly does happen. I mean, one or both parties attempt to intimidate the other by physical, uh, verbal, emotional, or financial threats in order to compel the other party to give in to their demands. And when I say litigation, I mean um, all forms of gossip, slander, and um, uncharitable judgments, whereby people plead their case basically to others in order to garner support against their opponent. Finally, murder, which provides anything but resolution to a conflict. When I was fresh out of um, undergrad, my first job was at a county children's services agency in rural southern Ohio, which is where my husband and I are both from. Um, I was working as an ongoing caseworker, so my job existed because of conflict, and so often I found myself um, unfortunately wrapped up in the middle of it out of necessity. One particular case with which I was involved ended in murder, sadly, because of conflict with the court, conflict with family, conflict with children's services, and conflict with medical staff. A mother and father thought it would be easier to murder their child than deal with the seemingly unending barrage of conflicts. As you can imagine, this only magnified and created more conflict, resulting ultimately in lives ruined and injustices never to be fully righted. Another conceptualization of conflict management is a two-dimensional taxonomy of conflict handling, which was coined by M.A. Rahim which centers around compromise. Um, this taxonomy is comprised of two domains relating to self. Think about it almost as like a, a grid, like an x-axis and a y-axis. You have a high concern for self um, and a low concern for self, and two domains relating to others. You have a high concern for others and a low concern for others. If you cross high concern for self with low concern for others, you end up with a dominating conflict management style, which results in competition and force. If you cross low concern for yourself and low concern for others, you get an avoidant conflict management style, which results in total withdrawal. Neither of these options are good options. The ideal responses that center around compromise are a, are a high concern for yourself and a high concern for others, resulting in an integrative or a collaborative um, approach to problem solving. 
Um, as well as a low concern for self and a high concern for others, which results in obliging or like an accommodating style of conflict management. Perhaps uh, you could make an argument that each conflict resolution style has its place, but very infrequently is there a need uh, for dominating force or avoidant withdrawal. These, le these less frequently result in compromise um, and actual conflict resolution. As we think biblically about conflict resolution, Let's consider portions of Ephesians 4 together. We read in verses 1, 2, and 3, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And later in verse 25 uh, through verse 32, we read, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. The central theme of this section in Ephesians is managing relationships and the problems that undoubtedly crop up. Ephesians 4 calls us to consider not our own selves, but others, offering forgiveness and striving for reconciliation just as Christ has forgiven us. This passage urges the reader to strive for unity in the spirit and run toward peace. And how do we do that? Well, he tells us, we put away lying and speak truth. When we're angry, we do not sin or dwell on our anger. We do not steal, instead work to give to those in need. We allow no corrupt words to depart from our lips, but speak only words that edify and impart grace. We put away all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, malice, and evil speaking or gossip. We do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Instead, we are tender-hearted and forgive others um, as God for Christ has forgiven us. That is how we strive toward unity and promote peace. So, what are appropriate responses to conflict? Let's go back to that slippery slope of conflict resolution that I mentioned earlier, the temperature gauge if you're thinking about it that way. Several peacemaking responses include overlooking, reconciling, negotiating, and mediating. Overlooking an offense is not equivalent to ignoring or denying an offense. It's an active decision to forgive the offender and not to pursue any form of correction. The scriptural warrant for overlooking an offense can be found in several passages such as Proverbs 12, 16, Colossians 3, 13, or 1 Peter 4, verse 8. Proverbs 19, 11 states, The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. But when should we overlook a conflict? It's a determination within ourselves that we will endure and be patient with a person's particular sin or the conflict at hand knowing that God sanctifies us in incremental changes, not all at once. Poiret states, overlooking an offense is a righteous expression of a peacemaker if the offense is not serious. 
But what happens when we can't overlook an offense? The modern world would tell us to cut out toxic people from our lives as if they're some invasive weed in our garden that we've cultivated um, as our ideal life, bearing no mind that um, these difficult individuals have their own side of the story, their own hardships, and their own struggles. These individuals, despite your frustration with, perhaps even intense anger with, are still individuals created in God's image. So we must resolve to continue searching for a biblical solution and not to cut them out. God calls us to a discussion with our brothers and sisters in Christ to show them their faults. Ideally, this discussion, if well executed and received, results in confession, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Matthew 5, 23 and 24 tells us to go and be reconciled to our brothers or sisters. We work to restore our relationships, not allow the weeds to grow up and, uh, and the ground to harden so much so that maturity, forgiveness, and fruitfulness are not grown in our gardens. And if discussion-oriented reconciliation doesn't work, we try negotiation. Negotiation concerns the substantive issues that need to be addressed in conflict, the concrete, measurable, and objective issues over which the parties are in disagreement. Biblical negotiation looks first to God's interest and then to the interests of others by combining the truth of God's word with his justice, his mercy, and his wisdom. Ken Sand uses um, an acronym PAUSE um, for biblical negotiation where parties prepare, affirm relationships, understand individuals and joint interests, search for creative solutions, and evaluate options objectively. Um, do so reasonably according to God's standard of justice. Biblical negotiation is founded upon James 1.19, which encourages the reader to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath, since, the wrath of, since wrath does not produce righteousness of God. Sometimes, though, when conflict is extensive or particularly volatile, mediation is needed. Um, I find this to be the most frequent sort of conflict resolution strategy that I use in the women's dorm, since I'm often learning about a conflict um, when it's nearing the point of eruption or it has already erupted. Mediation requires a middleman, um, someone to facilitate a conversation with sites that are set on reconciliation. Sometimes it takes an outside party to remind those in conflict of the peace for which they were created and to which they are called to, to maintain. So learn from my previous example. As a mediator, you control the conversation. Prayerfully consider how you should how you should mediate, asking God for humility and wisdom. You should set some ground rules and expectations uh, before the conversation really begins, and hold members of the conversation accountable to those rules. Don't let the conversation take a nosedive. Remember that you're in control if you're the mediator. There are sometimes in mediation when creating a contingency contract could be effective. Um, where one member agrees to disengage from conflict if the other member agrees to disengage from conflict. Um, it's kind of like building a golden bridge. Uh, you approach conflict in humility in hopes of making progress toward resolving the conflict altogether. It's kind of like a quid pro quo way to resolve conflict where both parties leave the conversation feel, feeling like they've been listened to and that they've gained something in return. Um, again. The goal is resolution and reconciliation together. Um, according to a study published in 2021 by the International Journal of Psychology and Education, 
Uh, there's a significant and positive relationship by a state of tranquility, or between a state of tranquility and forgiveness. But um, vengeance actually was negatively correlated with that, that state of tranquility and forgiveness. So when vengeance or retaliation is taken in response to a conflict instead of offering forgiveness, individuals experience lower levels of tranquility and peace. Forgiveness plays a mediating role in the relationship between vengeance and tranquility. The author says, um, as forgiveness increases, vengefulness decreases, but tranquility increases too. A key factor in conflict in its resolution is um, emotional intelligence. If you'll give me just a minute, I'm going to kind of take a side here um, to dwell on emotional intelligence for just a minute. Emotional intelligence is the capacity to understand our emotions and manage them effectively and to, and to understand and effectively manage the emotions of others. Um, because emotions have such a profound impact on how we think about conflict and make decisions, um, they have to be considered when managing human relationships and the conflict that naturally comes with them. Harvard Business Review cites a 12-element um, emotional intelligence domain, which includes items such as self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, and relationship management. While you won't be an expert in all domains, um, there are competencies within each that you can work to become more aware of and strive to cultivate in your life or encourage these in the lives of others that you're working with. Um, these are things like emotional self-control, adaptability, empathy, teamwork, and conflict management. So think about how some of these competencies impact the way we conceptualize conflict and go about its resolution. When we're faced with conflict, our response should be that of temperance or self-control. Perhaps we should show empathy to the involved parties in efforts to mitigate conflict altogether um, and strive for peace. How many conflicts could be avoided if we or others chose to be more adaptable or to be more flexible? It's no shock that um, individuals with higher levels of emotional intelligence, which as an aside, is something that can be cultivated. It's not necessarily something that you are or are born with. It's something that you can work to create in yourself. Um, individuals with higher levels of emotional intelligence have less relationship conflict or manage this conflict effectively. So this is something we should be striving after, emotional intelligence, that we should be working to um, to grow in this area of our, in these different areas of our lives so that we can avoid conflict uh, or manage it effectively, um, kind of lessening that time span of conflict. And when we try to navigate um, an emotionally charged situation, individuals with greater emotional intelligence will more accurately understand the situation. And it's like they can think about it from different angles. Um, and possess, they possess the ability to think more clearly and holistically about the conflict. In an article written about cultural values and emotional intelligence um, influencing conflict handling styles, the authors say, interpersonal conflicts are often perceived as personal attacks and as a result are often emotionally charged. Therefore, an individual's per perception of the, uh, their own ability to recognize one's own and others' emotions, as well as to regulate one's own emotions, becomes of central importance in an individual's preference for specific conflict handling styles. This sets the stage for us to talk about strategies to resolve conflict. And you're probably thinking, finally, she's getting to the, to the main point. Uh, but it really is important to lay 
the groundwork before we jump into the deep end of conflict resolution strategies. Understanding the why helps us better implement the how. Um, in her book, Changing the Conversation, Dana Kasperson details 17 principles of conflict resolution. I will not be going through all 17, but it is a really wonderful resource. Um, it is not written from a biblical perspective. However, um, it is an easy and accessible read, and I think it's a good book to have on hand if you um, are in the habit of managing conflict. Um, Kasperson lists the anti-principles of conflict resolution in tandem with, with principles of conflict resolution, which sets up a dichotomy of appropriate and healthy ways to manage conflict when it arises. Overall, she encourages the facilitation of listening and speaking, changing the conversation, and looking for ways forward. In efforts to facilitate listening and speaking, we should avoid hearing the attack of the conflict how often do we jump straight to defense mode when we feel that we're being attacked in conflict? And once we've been attacked, so often we just ignore everything else and, and play defense. Um, instead, stop and listen past the attack. Ask yourself, what's really underneath the attack? What if I said to my friend, I'm not even going to try to explain it to you, you never listen to me anyway. What is lying underneath the attack are feelings of not being listened to and not being cared for. What I could have said was, I really need you to listen to me right now. Sometimes I don't always feel like you hear me. When faced with an attack, trying to find out what's really going on, um, maybe ask yourself or someone else, what's your understanding of the situation? Or what do you think a good outcome might look like? Or maybe you say, what would you like to see happen now? Casperson says, um, temporarily ignore the how and the what of the, uh, the things being said and first focus intently on the why. Obviously the how and the what are important, but first it's, it's important to focus on the why, like we've, we've done uh, thus far. Uh, do this for both yourself and the other person, and even especially uh, when you are hurt or angry, it's very important to take a step back rather than acting on impulse and acting um, from our those first emotions that rise up when we feel attacked. Um, this obviously is uh, gonna take practice, but it really can be transformative in how you view conflict and how you approach its resolution. You resist, you should ideally resist the urge to attack back, but work to reorient your mindset in the direction of the conversation. Another strategy for managing conflict is to acknowledge emotions and see them as signals. As I mentioned earlier, emotions and conflict are a package deal. Um, emotions are not the origin of conflict, they're signals to what's important to us. When trying to manage and resolve conflict, it's important that we work to understand what may be behind the emotions, just like we work to understand what's behind the attack. They're kind of the same thing. When you feel sad that your parents always seem to be upset with you no matter what you do, ask yourself, why do I feel this way or what do I need? Maybe you need to feel that your parents are proud of you or that you're just doing your best. We should work to acknowledge the emotions of others in, in conflict in the same way. Instead of saying, it's been long enough, you're being too sensitive, it's time to move on and get over it. Try saying, it sounds like you're still pretty upset about this. Can you tell me what the hardest part has been? Instead of seeing emotions as obstacles or barriers to conflict, see them as helpful signals. The next one is a big one. When listening, avoid making suggestions. And how often do we do just the opposite? Someone comes to us with a problem and our, we're not even listening to the problem. We're just thinking, what am I gonna say next? How can I help this person? I once had a wise professor tell me 
that effective counseling is 80% listening and 20% talking. And I think about this all the time when I'm trying to resolve conflict. Oftentimes, people aren't open to hearing suggestions when they're in the midst of heightened emotions. It comes across as not listening and just fixing the other person. A person could feel devalued or as if you're speaking to them condescendingly. Of course, it's important to check our motives too. When you are making a suggestion, why are you making it? If you're making suggestions to prove a point, or maybe deep down you think you know what's best, or want to embarrass another party, you're not suggesting it for the right reasons. My advice is to steer, first steer clear of suggestions and less asked. Instead of suggesting, ask questions. This helps bring clarity to your understanding and may do the same for the person who is upset. Instead of blaming, figure out what's actually happening, not whose fault it is. Blaming looks to the past and it maintains the cycle of conflict. When we take a step back and ask what's going on, then we can begin to take steps forward toward functional solutions. So this is all about reframing the conversation. If one person moves away from blame, and toward problem solving, the attention of the conversation totally shifts. Um, actually, I would encourage you, instead of blaming, acknowledge traits or helpful contributions that aid in resolving the conflict. I will note, though, that sometimes these contributions aren't always positive, but are helpful and necessary in problem solving. For example, instead of saying, I can't really express my opinions very well because I get nervous or my brain is going a million miles a minute, perhaps saying, which is kind of hard to say, I sometimes feel that I can't express my opinions adequately because you've shot down my opinions in the past. I'd really like it if you hear me out. So again, it's not an attack, but it's just stating, um, it, it's clearly stating your own emotions, how you are feeling about the situation. Another conflict resolution strategy is to assume that undiscovered options exist and seeking solutions that both parties support. This is coming to a compromise which may not necessarily meet all of everyone's needs, but it does satisfy everyone involved to some extent, enough so that the conflict can be resolved. When we encounter conflict, we usually want to solve the problem immediately. So remember what I said earlier, don't rush into untangling that web of conflict only to find yourself more entangled than you intended. It's okay, um, it's kind of like Untangling Christmas lights, um, sometimes you start pulling at several strands and the knot becomes tighter. So don't rush into finding the perfect solution. Just take your time and really get to know the situation before settling on a final solution. It's important though to take stock of what needs are most pressing to be met. Once again, this strategy hinges upon asking questions and having an open mind to responses. When we narrow what uh, acceptable solutions look like, we may prolong a conflict or exacerbate the, the canyon that's between the two parties. Uh, Casperson uses the example of playing time on sports teams. The parent states, I want all players to get adequate field time regardless of skill level because it's teaching them about hard work and endurance. However, maybe a coach says, this is a competitive sports team. We're playing to win. It's not my fault that some kids just aren't born with it. Instead of asking, well, who should get the playing time, ask, what would it look like if the team valued both hard work and excellence? Does that impact the way playing time is distributed? Overall, it's important to acknowledge that there is conflict and not bury our heads in the sand. Addressing conflict brings it to light and may motivate a change in conversation about how conflict can be managed. 
when we keep things to ourselves or tell someone else frivolously, the problem is not being solved. In fact, maybe new conflict is being created. How many times have we all found ourselves in conflict with someone, maybe our boss or our coworker, and instead of seeking to resolve the conflict, we take part in the sinful practice of gossip or slander. Uh, it can bring so much satisfaction to rip someone apart behind their back, backs, tap a, uh, I'm not trying to be mean, or oh, bless their heart, onto our comments and leave feeling better about ourselves. But we know that this is uncharitable, unfair, and unchristlike, and it doesn't resolve conflict. In some instances, it is okay to speak to a trusted friend or a mentor about our conflict, but should be done with deepest concern for the other party's reputation and well-being. Um, the minute details should be generally spared, if possible, and the conversation should be kept to the minimum. Finally, an effective conflict resolution strategy is to plan ahead for future conflict, because there will be future conflict. Let's learn um, with each new conflict how to better handle emotions, experiences, and needs of others, as well as ourselves. Let's learn how to be better listeners and slow speakers, and let's not shy away from resolving the conflict, but face it with directness and concern, not so much for ourselves, um, but with concern for others, and a, a desire for unity, peace, resolution, and reconciliation. I wanna thank you for attending the seminar on biblical conflict resolution. It really has been an honor to be here